Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation with Winfield Blevins on his new book, Ever Ancient, Ever New. So Scott, this is a, a very timely conversation that we have um, right now when we're recording. It's Holy Week, and you and Winfield just have a, a great conversation over his new book. What Before we jump into the conversation, do our listeners need to know about Winfield? Well, Winfield is a professor at Asbury Seminary. He's an Anglican priest, and he has, uh, uh, I think, uh, hit, hit the golden coin not in the sense of money, but in the in his um, uh, decision to ask people throughout the United States uh, what's going on with this liturgy, because he is beginning to notice, or he was beginning to notice, a growth of interest in liturgy and lectionary. So he began to ask questions and to do a study, and he has collected hundreds of interviews of the change in public worship on Sundays in so many kinds of churches. So I, I'm encouraging people to, to read his book. Pastors who come from very low traditions uh, can benefit deeply from, from these sorts of practices. They don't have to announce, we're going to become Anglican and use the Book of Common Prayer every Sunday. They don't need to do that, but they can... Um, filter these things into their churches, and they will find that people resonate with these words, with these powerful scriptural references, and with these wonderful prayers and liturgical sayings. So I'm, I'm excited about people using Winfield's stuff because he's making people aware of a movement in the United States of liturgy among churches and church leaders. I totally agree. And we believe in his book that he put together um, so much that we want to give you an opportunity to win a free copy of it. So all you have to do is get on either on iTunes or Stitcher to rate or review our podcast. We appreciate all of you who have done that. It really helps the podcast out um, and and gain awareness of the conversations about the kingdom that we have. And so if you get on and rate or review, I'm going to read one of those at our next episode. And you you will get a free copy of Winfield's book. But he really, Scott and, and Winfield talked some great things in their conversation. I think you'll really enjoy it. And so without further ado, here's the conversation. I met Winfield. I Well, I may have met him more than once, but I remember being with him at Asbury when I was given some lectures there. And then um, I heard about this project that he's working on. uh, And um, uh, from him, when we were, when I was speaking at an event, I want to say it was in Tennessee, but now I I think it was in Nashville, wasn't it? Yeah, it was in Nashville. Yeah. Yeah. It was at Mike Glenn's church. And uh, I was immediately interested because uh, it is documenting the growth of liturgy uh, in among evangelicals or among American Christians, among young Christians in the United States, and how it is showing up in a variety of ways in 
very different kinds of churches. So uh, I thought it would be great uh, to have Winfield on our uh, podcast, Kingdom Roots podcast, to talk about this recent development. And uh, Winfield, I wonder if you would begin with some uh, defining for some of our people who um, may not even know what these terms mean, but could you define liturgy for us or describe it a bit so people can understand what we're talking about here? Yeah, liturgy um, on, on one hand refers to kind of corporate worship. You know, it comes from the Greek word, you know, it means kind of the worship of the people, uh, the work of the people rather. And so it's kind of what we do together in worship. Every church, every tradition has a liturgy. The question is whether it's good liturgy or bad liturgy, right? And yeah. um and so, but but also the way I use it in the book, it, there's also individual practices. There's corporate liturgical practice practices that we have, but there's also individual practices um, that the church has kind of passed down through the centuries that help form us throughout the rest of the week. Um, so, in in many ways, liturgy connects kind of the corporate worship as we gather together, but also kind of the passing on of individual practice, liturgical practices. Spiritual disciplines. Yeah. Is, is yeah. So, so let's um, let's stay with the basic basics here. What would be typical corporate practices of liturgy or worship? Yes. So, in, w- one of the things that I do in the book is I look at kind of the historic framework of kind of the traditional liturgy, and so many of your kind of you know. Your, your major kind of liturgical or traditions like Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Anglicanism, kind of follow uh, kind of a word and table liturgy. There's um, uh, Robert Weber kind of framed it around a fourfold structure where we gather and worship. There's a gathering. This is where we come. There's kind of worship. There's songs. There's prayers um, that we speak together. Um then there's a, kind of the hearing of the word is kind of the second part. There's reading of scriptures. Um, there's a sermon or a homily uh, where we hear the word spoken over us and to us. Uh, and this prepares us to uh, what kind of follows that is a corporate confession and prayers of the people where uh, we pray for the nation, the world, uh, the congregation, individual needs. And all of this is kind of leading up to the Lord's table. Um, Holy Communion, and uh, this is kind of the, the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And after that, the the liturgy ends with the sending out, um, where the people of God are sent out back into the world on mission. And so that fourfold structure is going to kind of, you're going to see this in all of your major liturgical traditions. And one of the things I look at in the book is how even new churches, even kind of those coming from low church traditions, are taking and appropriating that structure uh, in their individual context. You know, your uh, fourfold structure from from uh, Bob Weber is exactly what happens in our church. Of course, we're Anglicans, so we do these sorts of things. And um, when we first started going to Church of the Redeemer, it made me reflect quite often, uh, and not in a negative way, on the sort of liturgy that we experienced at Willow Creek, where we attended for 10 years, or close to 10 years. My daughter married a man who was on staff there. Mm -hmm. And um, 
there was a, a kind of liturgy. You know, we come in and uh, we we sing for quite a while. I, I've never, uh, I like to listen to people sing. I don't like standing, singing. I, I can just sit there and enjoy it. Uh, it was more performance. In other words, we, I wanted to hear the people on the stage rather than just people participating. And there would be usually some announcements. At one time, they had quite a bit of drama. And then it would be a very long sermon. I mean, 45 minutes would be common for the sermon. And when that sermon was over, there could be an invitation and people leave. Well, that, that's a kind of liturgy, but it is not the uh, what you call the high church. And it's not the historic liturgy of the mm-hmm. church that taps into those four elements. So I, I, I was going to say this to you. I don't know if I told you this, Winfield, but my daughter and, and her husband, who were Willow Creekers for 15 years or so, mm-hmm. and my son, who grew up in an evangelical free church largely, and his wife, who grew up covenant, um, come to our church. And especially my son-in-law and my daughter mm-hmm. were overwhelmed by the public reading of scripture. Mm, yeah. And the one of the dramatic things that I've noticed about that I and I can say this about Willow Creek because they they stand by this. Uh, and that is they don't read they don't have public readings of scripture. They don't read from the from the Old Testament and then the Psalms and yeah. then an epistle and then a gospel. They read the text and maybe it can only be one verse. And it's usually on a screen and the congregation doesn't read it together. Uh, They don't, you know, a lot of these churches do not have the public reading of scripture. So just wonder if you had any comment on that. Yeah, no, I think that's a great observation. If they do, it'll be a verse. And oftentimes, you know, the sermon may or may not have anything to do with the verse or, you know, maybe totally taken out of context. And, and that is something that people experience coming into a liturgical churches. It's almost overwhelming at first, you know, the old Testament, the Psalm reading, the epistle gospel reading, and usually typically you stand for the gospel reading in honor of the gospel reading. And it can be very powerful and jarring at first. Um, and that's what that's what happened with my daughter and her husband. They loved it. They said, yeah. man, uh, you know, the a, uh, a lot of these churches that they've attended, both of them in different ways, in different locations where they've lived, uh, they stood for the Bible, but they never read the script. I mean, they, they didn't stand for it. They, they believed that they were yes. Bible churches, but they didn't read Scripture. And, and I've been... I, I love the public reading of scripture and yeah. I tell my students and you in Winfield, you can tell yours the same thing. If you believe it, I tell my students that the most authoritative moment in a church service is the public reading mm. of scripture, not the sermon. Yep. So. No, I love that. Um, and Bishop John Howe wrote a book on um, Anglicanism where he says uh, in a stroke of genius, Cramner, kind of created the, you know, helped create kind of the the most biblical kind of literate church movement, you know, kind of Cramner's, yeah, in, you know, yeah. in the early development of the Book of Common Prayer. You have this yeah. lectionary and and it's tied to the Reformation, like the love and the passion of Scripture. And so liturgical churches really, you're immersed in the story of God, the whole story of God yeah. in a real powerful way. And especially like we're in Holy Week, uh, you go to a great Easter vigil. There's sites oh. 
there's symbols, there's massive reading. You are immersed in the story of God in a very powerful way. Almost half the Gospels are read uh, <laughs> yeah. on those days. Yeah. Um, you just said something that, um, and I, I will reveal my ignorance. I'm not a church historian. Um, was there not a public reading of Scripture prior to the Reformation? Well, so again, what Cramner did with the Book of Common Prayer uh, is is so significant because it it literally, uh, you know, Oxford Dictionary of like quotes. It's it's like next to the King James Bible. What Cramner did with the English speaking Book of Common Prayer put the prayers back in the language of the people. You know, oftentimes we think of the Reformation as like, you know, English people didn't have a Bible. Well, they did, you know, the services were in Latin. And so if you think of how revolutionary it was that Cramner helped to craft and edit this prayer book, the Book of Common Prayer, the liturgy is so rich. um, and, And it has kind of the reformational theology that's in there. And so... Um, with that, when he took the daily offices and put all of this in common language, it was Cramner's intent that common, ordinary people, thus, you know, the term Book of Common Prayer, is that it wasn't just what a priest does on, you know, the, the platform or at the altar, but there, you know, there are the prayers that we're, everyone has a role to play, you know, in the divine drama. And through the daily offices that happen throughout the rest of the week, people are being immersed um, constantly with the scriptures and not for sure. If you're familiar with Ashley Knoll, he's kind of, uh, he's, he's probably one of the world's leading Cramnerian scholars. He, he says that for Cramner, the scriptures were the spigot of the Holy spirit. And he wanted people to just sit under the constant bombardment and, um, hearing of the word of God and to put the word of God in their hands. And so that was really the intent of kind of Cramner's use of, he kind of developed an, a kind of an early uh, lectionary practice, if you will. So uh, Cranmer puts into English the lectionary and people got it in the morning and in the evening on their way to work into the fields and on their way back. Uh, they could hear scripture being read. And if they came every Sunday or every day, in a year, they would hear virtually the whole Bible being read. But is this uh, is this the first time that the Bible is being read publicly uh, in church services in the common language? In the English-speaking language. In the English-speaking so, yeah, language. So, yeah. So prior to the, I mean, in German, Luther's doing it. But I mean, it's not that much before Luther. I mean, after Luther. So um, this is this is a. This is something I, I wasn't aware. Of. Well, now let's let's move on. Um, I'd like you to give us three highlights from your book on the rise of liturgical interest and practices among American Christians today. Yeah, I think that um, I really think this is a movement. I think it's a spiritual renewal movement that's happening in our day. Um, there's kind of the critique oftentimes like, oh, this is kind of a fad. It's kind of the new gimmick to get people into church or, you know, old is new. Um, I think for some people it is that, but I think what's fascinating is there's a documented movement that has been happening since uh, at least the mid-1960s where American Christians 
also primarily evangelical Christians have been searching and kind of recovering and retrieving roots um, by going back to the patristics, a rising interest of liturgy. You see this with Robert Weber, the Chicago Call. You have uh, interesting Tom Oden around the exact same time kind of almost has a shift from liberalism to embracing orthodoxy by recovering the patristics. Mm-hmm. And, and so you have like 60s, 70s, you have scholars are experiencing this in major places like Wheaton and others. And so um, I would say the 80s, 90s, 2000s, it, there's this trickle-down effect to where there are hundreds of churches. It, it's fascinating. This is happening with new churches like church plants, um, cross-denominationally, Baptist churches, um, non-denominational. I've had a significant number of Afro-Latino uh, church leaders reach out to me about the book, just sharing how they are and their communities are embracing okay. liturgy. So one is, I actually think there this represents a higher synthesis among evangelicals. It's not a rejection of evangelicalism, um, but it's actually, like you said in the foreword, you know, when your born-again faith met the, the liturgy and the lectionary, something magic happened. Um, I think it's a hunger among evangelicals for a higher synthesis. And two, um, I think it represents a hunger for deeper kind of formation, spiritual formation, discipleship. And the way I tell people, and this is kind of an underlining principle of the book, is that the, uh, the liturgy, when rightly appropriated, is one of the best ways to make disciples in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Um, because you, it's, it offers a holistic framework. Um, yeah. You have these seasons of the church year that you're following Jesus, not just on Easter Sunday, but there's this, these, these seasons that have scriptures and prayers and practices that are attached to them. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it, it kind of represents, I think, a deeper spiritual hunger, a hunger for kind of a more embodied faith, um, and, uh, you know, there's I, I do get into this in one of the chapters on what is what is the allure? You know, I offer, you know, a, a number of points based on the research and interviews that I did. Uh, but one, I think I really think we're in the midst of something where people are in some ways it's a rejection of kind of the the big box Walmart style churches that you go, you hear a performance and people yeah are hungry to participate. They're hungry to engage. They're hungry to go deep. They don't want to just be entertained. Yeah. They're looking for depth and yeah. formation. Um, Winfield, give us a couple examples of the sorts of things that you're seeing. Churches that are doing this. What what are they doing that in, in picking up liturgical practices? Yeah, so you, again, one of the, um, you know, I look at different journeys. So I, again, I tried to paint a broad you know, movement. So, you know, I interviewed young adults that have become Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, but the vast majority of them are kind of remaining in their tradition and appropriating. Um, And so I was really fascinated at just the number of what I would call neo-liturgical churches. These are churches that are kind of remaining in the free church, but they're embracing uh, historic practices, and I'm assuming that's what you're asking. Like, yeah, yeah, what, yeah, what, what are, are they doing? Yeah, a lot of these, a lot of these churches are. You would go in, and it has kind of the feel and the vibe of a lot of newer churches in our day. You know, there's kind of a 
maybe a casual feel to it. Um, you know, they might engage in coffee and different things. But when the worship starts, there's actual liturgy. Um, and, and I almost wonder if some of these, you know, there was kind of the critique, you know, during the kind of the emerging church movement. I think that kind of did represent some some fads where people were kind of, you know, they might light a candle and call that ancient future. One of of the things that I'm seeing is a a very serious, real engagement with liturgy in kind of postmodern contexts. And that actually is encouraging to me. Um, A hunger to to be faithfully, you know, kind of orthodox, um, but also kind of, you know, engaging culture contexts. So a lot of these churches will have kind of contemporary worship music. Um, but they'll have, they'll follow lectionary readings. Um, you know, they'll have the public reading of scripture, as you mentioned, uh, there will be a sermon, but the sermon isn't, you know, it's not, everything doesn't rise or fall on the sermon. Uh, they'll have the balance of, uh, word and table. And a lot of them use those terms, word and table. And a number of them also, an interesting thing are, are kind of really, uh, I don't know if you could call them fully charismatic, but a lot of these churches, there, there really is an openness. So the service really has a spiritual vibrancy to it. Um, a lot of these churches will have contemporary worship intermingled with their use. A lot of them are using the Book of Common Prayers, Eucharistic liturgy for, for Sunday. Mm-hmm. And then they'll have prayer stations in the back. Um, so it's really kind of a fusion. It really is kind of a ancient future blending but the best ones that I've seen are the ones that are really faithfully engaging the liturgy in a way that's very thoughtful. And they're trying to be historically rooted in what they're actually doing. Yes. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, one of the questions I would ask, and I think it's kind of a quick, and then I wanted to ask a, a larger question. And that is, are you seeing churches that have been historically low church? In, and, and that's not a, a degrading expression, uh, but uh, let's say non-liturgical. Um, are you seeing more of them pick up weekly Eucharist? Yes. That is, that is, that's a big change. Now I, I've been connected with the restoration movement quite a bit. Churches mm-hmm. of Christ, Christian church. They do the Lord's supper every week. Um, so they, they believe in it, but I, I'm I'm beginning to hear among my students a more um, a deeper commitment to weekly Eucharist, which which takes time, and that means something has to give, and a lot of these churches are giving up a little bit of sermon time. Here here's the question, uh, Winfield. I think you, as an expert on liturgical history and liturgy, could help us with. Can you? Uh, borrow or uh, piecemeal or grab a little bit of liturgy here and a little bit of liturgy there and create the kind of formational um, life that liturgy is designed to create? Yeah, you would ask that question. Um, It's, you know, I think you know, as I said, I think the best models that I've experienced are those that are really going deep and it's not just a cut and paste um, because there's a theological historical uh, development of the historic framework of the liturgy. 
those prayers, the other thing is I've seen some churches, you know, they'll change the prayers every Sunday, but they have yeah. word and table. Yeah. Um, and they'll, you know, do, you know, the challenge with that is there's something that happens by saying the same prayers over and over week That's and right. week out. They That's sink right. into your memory. They, they become a part of you. Yeah. And, and um, you know, it's like I, I'm going to paraphrase and I shouldn't do this, but C.S. Lewis, when asked on, you know, what is good worship? You know, he he kind of talks about it. he's speaking out of his own Anglican experience. He says the best worship is the worship you don't even know that's going on. Hmm. Um, if you're just inventing, he said, you know, basically he's talking about free church. church. He says, you know, if you never know what the, ser- you know, the sermon or the scripture reading or the songs are going to be, you're always kind of on your toes, he said, but the best worship is the worship that you can enter into. And that's really what the liturgy is. You're entering into the worship of God with the people of God. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I tell people here at Asbury with the historic Methodist connection, Wesley was an Anglican. And yes, by and th- we say the same prayers, you know, the colic for purity, he would have known that by heart and yeah. would have said it. Um, I've got his abridged, um, Sunday service book for the Methodists and it's very minimal changes to the actual 1662 book of common prayer, Eucharistic liturgy. Hmm. Well, uh, Winfield, I, I've, my experience with the Anglican church is that it wasn't until the third year and the fourth year that I began to see what liturgy and lectionary do for a person. Mm. And this is why I don't, I I have friends, pastor students, Mm -hmm. who say, we're going to do, we're going to do Advent this year. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm glad you are. And, and it's almost like you see, we're, we're growing. And I, I want to say, I want you to do that church calendar for three years and then (laughs) let's talk. Or they'll say, we're going to do Lent. And so I'll say, what are you, what are you going to do uh, at, at Lent? And uh, they've got, they've, they're creating their own uh, series of sermons. And I yep. think, no, we've got this, uh, we've got this sorted out. And it is in the, and all the great themes mm-hmm. of Lent are found in the church liturgy because it's been done over hundreds of years by very gifted people very thoughtful people who've tried and practiced and learned that these are the best ways to do certain things. So I, I don't believe that sampling here and there, a little bit of liturgy and a little bit of lectionary for yeah. a brief period is, is, is going to do the formative work that liturgy and lectionary are designed to do. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. This is something that has unfolded. This is um, the way I describe it. It's the, the liturgy is kind of this beautiful, complex ecosystem, and it's it offers this holistic framework. And if you think of cogs of a wheel, like I remember when I was a kid, I used to like take apart like my older brother's and dad's watches and rip off the face because I love I was obsessed with, you know, the little inner cogs of the, the, the mm-hmm. clock face. And, you, you know, you have like this kind of cosmic annual rhythm that the church is following through with the church calendar. And it's really amazing when you first discover this. It's actually overwhelming. And it takes a while to understand 
the complexities and the beauty of how this works, but you're essentially following Jesus through the church year. And each of these rhythms and patterns have scriptures, they're connected. So the annual cycle is connected to the weekly cycle of worship. That's so right. There's the, the public reading of scripture, it's all interconnected, the prayers. And you're each week you're being reminded of the gospel stories. You come to the table. So powerful. And then the weekly and the annuals also connected to the daily. You have the daily office. And so it's like mm -hmm. these cogs of a wheel. And one of the things, too, that I've found it, as I was writing the book and visiting churches, I was shocked at how many young families um, across the spectrum are in these churches. They're actually drawing young families. Yeah. And I think there's a hunger for the formation of the family. And there's something, I think, in the, the rediscovery of the church year, it actually gives you practices. There are yeah. things that you can kind of take home and you can live out your faith. We take the bulletin home and we use those weekly scriptures as kind of our family, to be honest with you, our family devotions. We have, um, I, I think being a part of a, an Anglican church uh, has been one of the most formative things for us as a family, especially, um, you know, as we've moved, we found this amazing church in Lexington that we get to go up and take communion together as a family. We pray those prayers together. Our girls have memorized the, the, the service. You know, we were able to say the confession together. It, it just really has a, a significant formative power to it because we're not cut and pasting from week to week and kind of, hey, we're going to do a little bit of this here, a little bit of that there. So I think I think you're absolutely right is it's kind of like taking half of your doctor's prescription you know, and saying, yeah, I'll only use part of this. Um, this, this little bit will be good and we'll invent this piece. Well, the vast majority of Christians throughout the vast majority of church history have been liturgical sacramental Christians. That's right. You know, and it's also, there's another side to that. Not only, you know, we go forward and we, um, my son and his wife and their two children. So our grandchildren are with us on Sundays and my son, my daughter and her husband are with us. So yes, we do go together um, as a family, but there's another side to this. And that is if we go to another town and we go to another Anglican church, we get the same thing. We're getting the same liturgy that yep. uh, is, it's going to be a different sermon. Um, okay. Now one, this is one that uh, always concerns me. I was, I have, um, I've, I've read the work of uh, uh, Jamie, Jamie Smith, J.K.A. Smith, on uh, I think his first his first book in his trilogy had some stuff about liturgy, and um, I believe in the formative power of liturgy. But one of the most important things for us to observe as theologians, as people who teach in the church, is that some of the most liturgically drenched Christian areas in the world mm -hmm. have some of the deadest churches in the world. Yeah. So liturgy by itself isn't the secret. Yep. What, what takes liturgy to the next level? Yeah, that's, so the conclusion of the book, that's really where I kind of try to bring it to a head is, um, one of the observations that I've have seen in young adults that have embraced liturgical traditions. Now, this is interesting, and I didn't fully explicate it in the book because I didn't, uh, is 
a lot of them have, you know, you know, it's almost like the U2 song. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. They've, they've embraced like charismatic Pentecostal for the experience looking for the silver bullet. Well, when the experience wears off, um, they've looked at the young restless, uh, reformed movement. It's kind of looking for, you know, God in, in this, this perfect theological framework. And, um, and, experience doctrine and liturgy alone by themselves uh i I don't think alone will form you i think an orthodox you know kind of bringing together orthodoxy orthopraxy and orthopathy is kind of the, the holistic framework for the liturgy so when you have the liturgy devoid of theology then it just becomes dead ritualism you know, kind of the spirit filled mm-hmm. charismatic stream without word and um, sacrament can kind of become charismania. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the word alone, you know, can kind of, you know, if you just have that can lead you toward fundamentalism. And so there's mm-hmm. something in this balance of, and that's where I think the, the liturgy kind of helps kind of bring it, it helps root you. It helps bring a balance to it all. Is, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And uh, the things that I like to talk about in this connection, and I and I think you've touched them with other terms, is uh, invocation of the Spirit. Uh, mm-hmm. We need the Spirit of God to yes. to come. Uh, we need the grace of God. We. It's not the liturgy is not going to change us. Dallas Willard used to always say that the spiritual disciplines are. Uh, well, I don't know what you said earlier, but it was cl- it was clever. Um, they are, they make us open to mm. God's transforming work. They are not the transforming work. So yes. what'd you call it? Spigots or something? Spigot. Yeah. We're under the spigot of the Holy. It kind of puts us the way, yeah. uh, the way I describe it is liturgy gives us a structure, not a straight jacket, um, yeah. where we can be open to the Holy spirit, but it gives us some, some boundaries. It gives us a framework. Yeah to yep. kind of run the train on. And I've had some of the most deeply uh, spirit-filled experiences and moments in, in beautiful liturgical services. Uh, and it, it's, it's almost like um, you're encountering uh, dimensions of the work of the spirit in, 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 in realms that you can't in just a pure kind of charismatic free church service, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think, um, uh, you know, those are all, those are all the, the, the key factors to me, the, the presence of the spirit, the importance of the grace of God. And I, and I think we have to be open. We have to be believing. We have to yeah. be trusting. Um, most of the time, God doesn't knock us off our bicycles and say, stop. Um, we, we, uh, we have to participate. We have to be open to what God is doing. We turn ourselves. Uh, if, if you listen to the words of the liturgy, there are profound acts of faith, profound mm-hmm. acts of commitment, profound acts of uh, obedience. Uh, the, these are not just words, but if you really say these words, I mean, if you really confess your sins when yeah. we do the confession of sin, if you really 
confess the creed when we read the creed aloud. You are act. I mean, it it can wear you out thinking of all that you are committing yourself to, opening yourself to as you enter into or participate in a liturgical service. Well, Winfield, we've gone. We've, I think we've gone beyond our limit here. But um, I wanna I wanna tell you thanks for this wonderful book, and I wanna encourage everybody who listens to the Kingdom Roots podcast that his new book, Ever Ancient, Ever New, by Winfield Bevins, The Allure of Liturgy for a New Generation, maps and talks about the growth of liturgy among all kinds of groups of Christians in the, in the United States especially. And I, I would encourage people to, to read this and then to think about how they might join the rest of the church in its liturgical practices. And uh, I want to thank you and see if you just have a, a closing word for our listeners. Absolutely, Scott. Thanks so much for having me on today. And, you know, even if you're not into liturgy and it's not your thing and you're wanting to learn more about what this is and um, how how it's impacting young people's lives, I think this book's very relevant for um, for that as well. Um, it's based on research. You know, I did hundreds of interviews across the U.S. And uh, this there's something significant that the Lord's doing in our day and mm-hmm. uh, and drawing people back to the historic roots of the faith. And the liturgy is a beautiful way that brings Christians together. Um, so thanks again. Could, it, could I close this with a word of prayer? A yes, prayer for yes us? please do. Here's yeah. a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. It's a prayer of self-dedication. It's just, a, again, one of these beautiful, rich prayers of the church. Uh, Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to you. So guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills that we may be wholly yours, utterly dedicated unto you. And then use us, we pray, as you will, and always to your glory and welfare of your people. Through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Winfield. Bless you. Bless you. Thank you. Thanks to Winfield, and thanks to our listeners for joining us again today. Hope you were as encouraged as I was just about the hunger and thirst for so much of the church to experience a deeper level of transformation and formation in Christ, and really the way in which liturgy is serving that purpose. So I want to encourage you to... um, look into our show notes. I've got a link to Winfield's book. Also, don't forget, if you rate or review our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher, we're going to put you in a drawing for next week. We'll pick one of those reviews and we'll um, give you a free copy of Winfield's book. So please take a chance to do that. Thanks for joining us today. And we look forward to joining you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.